Hello and welcome to episode 268 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Weishan, and I've got Tony with me here today. Hey, T, how is it going? It's going well, um, but more importantly, uh, how's it going for you, uh, having just got back from holiday? Ah, it was great. I had a whole week of not having emails turned on, uh, and it was it was excellent. I went to Da Nang in Vietnam uh, with my husband, and we just had a really good time there. Yeah, but you know what? I came back to Hong Kong, and two days later, a typhoon just goes past. So, um, the the stock market was closed on Monday. All good. All good fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they just wanted you to be able to ease into uh, the work week back, but no, Vietnam's like that's a bucket list place for me for sure. Like just because you know, I'm obsessed with like uh, Anthony Bourdain and just you know all the shows that he did from there and the food and the cultural sites and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I definitely oh. got to get out there at some point. Yeah, it was excellent. My tummy was very happy, I would say. Yeah. What's the best country you've ever been to? Oh, that's hard. What was your hard. favorite trip? That is really hard. <laughs> I was not anticipating that, spot. so I haven't, yeah, I haven't thought about it. Uh, For me, it's wow. Japan. Japan oh. is, is is a little slice of heaven on earth, in my opinion. I should say Japan too, right? Because uh, Evan proposed oh, there. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, yeah in front of uh, Mount Fuji, right? Yeah, uh, that was that was really nice. Actually, I really enjoyed that 2017 trip to Japan to Tokyo. Though there are many other places in Japan I would like to go to. Uh, where else? I think this Viet- this this past Vietnamese trip was good too. Um, and then uh, I'm sorry. Turkey, our honeymoon. So not well, not you and me, our honeymoon. But yeah. <laughs> Shh! Don't tell anyone. Damn. <laughs> All right. It's well, funny though. Like note, we've been, yeah. we've been. Oh, one more thing before you, yeah. yeah, carry on. We we were actually thinking, and we were chatting about it. Um, like we should go to Armenia next. So uh, Evan was like, "Oh, should ask Tony for some tips." Yeah. Well, I got to go there, too. I, my, that's yeah, also I know. my bucket list, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, that's also a dream for me. Um, all right. Well, before we get into the podcast, I just want to let listeners that are subscribers know we have a 3,000-word story on some of the on how some of the banks are viewing the risk around um, generative AI and specifically ChatGPT. We spoke to, I think, about nine different banks um, most on background, um, just about how they're slowly or using or how they're just like, no, it's not, it's not ready for prime time. Um, we have, I wrote a couple thousand words about the state of desktop interoperability and just talk about interop bio, which is made of glue 42 and Finsemble and connectify as well. The, the, the startup, uh, that's not desktop app interop their cloud interop. Um, so check that out. And then if you haven't checked it out yet, you gotta read Wei Shen's excellent story about uh the hub com- uh, consortium for uh to see uh why there's been a lack of news on that front. And uh it's a really good uh, story there. So those three stories I'd highlight before we get into anything. Mm, great. Well, tell us who our guest is on the podcast this week. Our guest this week is Brad Levy. Um, you all may know him from Symphony. He's the CEO of Symphony. Uh, before that, he was at IHS Market. Before that, he was 
18 years at Goldman. Um, I've, I've no, I, I, it's funny. We were talking that I actually haven't seen Brad since the pandemic. He started at symphony, like almost right in the middle of the pandemic. And yeah, right in the middle of the pandemic. And, um, he, uh, but I knew him, uh, from IHS market. Anyway, he's one of my, I enjoy talking with him. You know, he, he jet tends to be a good straight shooter. We talk about, uh, how symphony is kind of the direction he's looked to take the company since he took over to, he joined the company three years ago, um, during the pandemic, but took over as CEO from David Gurley, uh, two years ago. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk about the state of ESG and ESG data and analytics and just kind of what a cluster, you know, what that is. You're back from vacation. I should have cursed right there just so you would have had to bleep it out. Um, You're so kind. And then, and then I just ask him about, has his managerial style changed? You know, you know, he, cause he was a CEO of market serve as well beforehand. So he's been a CEO, but now during the pandemic has anything changed for him? So it's a wide ranging conversation. Me and him talk about mental health and stuff like that. So yeah, it's interesting. It's fun. Um, uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Hey, let's get to it then. Let's go. And now I am joined by Brad Levy, the CEO of Symphony. Uh, Brad, thanks so much uh, for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me today. Pleasure to be here. For those that don't know, um, Brad was previously at IHS Market. Uh, I first met Brad when he was uh, CEO of MarketServe under the IHS, uh, I guess, you know, a subsidiary there. Um, and it was an interesting time because you guys were doing you know, kind of just a, a very ambitious project to move the market serve platform to the cloud. Um, early adopters or early movers for those legacy firms that started to realize, oh no, we have to go to the cloud. And uh, before that you had uh, about two decades or close to it at Goldman Sachs. So your understanding of the market's quite uh, well, uh, it, it's, it's quite strong, quite deep, but uh, you joined uh, we were just talking about this uh, before the on, before the call, but you joined uh, Symphony as President Chief Commercial Officer, I believe, um, in uh, basically a few months after the pandemic began. And then in, I think, April 2021, uh, you were named uh, CEO, um, taking over for the founder, uh, David Gurley, um, who's, who took a step back. So... I guess what would be most interesting to talk about to get things off, we're going to talk about ESG um, and some of the things that you guys are seeing. And but I, I would like to kind of set up the vision that you have for the company. So in the two years that you that you've been the CEO, um, the company has made some uh, strategic acquisitions around Cloud9 technologies, around Street Links, and um, uh, Amity uh, Analytics, mm -hmm. um, who will. will we'll be using some data for, for some of the ESG conversation, but in the two years, what was kind of your vision for Symphony going forward and for its users and how far have you gotten on that path and where do you kind of still see the company having to go? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the journeys are, uh, interesting and I've been here three years and, uh, now two years as of June 21 in the CEO seat, but, I think one of the initial uh, pushes that we made when I joined as president chief commercial officer was really moving more into markets and market infrastructure, um, as opposed to being more of an enterprise technology for chatting. 
again, chat and messaging and encryption are all part of the core value platform of Symphony. But I think we we started to move away from that as the core value and really more into the markets. Um, flash forward, we acquire Cloud9, which is another communication platform in the markets, very front office heavy, obviously, with Trader Voice. Um, Streetlinks is a broader play on defining the industry as people on a system with a profile of things they care about across the front, middle, and back office. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, Amenity is a data app, um, analytics platform that we acquired last November. So part of what we did was shift to being focused on markets, and then we acquired assets that either doubled down or made us just that much more interesting for front, middle, back office players in the markets across the globe and across the different asset classes. And now we're much more about how do we drive Symphony as it's half a million users you know, plus into getting more value out of it, or obviously onboarding more users that believe they'll get value out of joining, uh, you know, the Symphony platform more generally. I remember when David uh, was uh, there, uh, CEO, and you know, kind of some of the some of the things, a lot of things that were talked about around Symphony back then that I don't quite hear talked about much anymore. Maybe that's just because the press isn't talking about it as much anymore, or maybe it's because it, there's a strategic reason to this, but. Some of the talk was around, you know, um, oh, will there be an IPO for this company going forward? You know, what is the buy side um, kind of buy-in for the platform? Mm -hmm. When it comes to those kind of things, you know, you guys have a lot of uh, well-known, you know, the backers of the of Symphony when it was launched were some of the heaviest hitters on Wall Street as far as the investment banks were concerned. Mm -hmm. Well, as it can, as it when it comes to kind of attracting buy side talent and growing the user base, where what is the strategy that the company currently has? Where where do you think that there's maybe room beyond just where you guys have already gotten on on the sell side? Yeah, so I think as part of that move, um, you know, not just being an enterprise collaboration chat system and and geared maybe more toward banks, but really moving toward a markets uh focused platform that would mean getting more activity on from not just the the banks or the sell side in the banks but the buy side and even the providers around that so again in the last year or two we've grown our buy side presence pretty substantially just numbers of logos on we have key buy sides that are really leaning into the platform again it may be research it may be middle back office it could be interacting with their counterparties it could be something around the prime brokerage space so we definitely have more buy sides that are more active now than we did a couple of years ago. Um, obviously, that helps the sell side get value. That's been there, you know, as a sell side generated consortium, uh, you know, eight or nine years ago. Um, and then we also have a greater engagement with the partners, um, which is definitely one of the paths to get more buy side. So whether it's the um, order management type providers and execution management, EMS, OMS, PMS, um, or the different um, research platforms, et cetera, um, or settlements initiatives that are going on. You know, all of those, the buy side is a heavy consumer of vendor technology. Um, the, the banks are as well. I'd say the buy side is not just a consumer, but they tend to be pretty reliant, um, as well as reliant on like fund administration and custodian relationships. So we've made progress with custodians and fund admins. We've made progress with vendors and technology providers more generally. And a lot of that has been geared toward us getting more and more momentum with the buy side specifically that started three years ago and we started to turn more toward the markets. And now, 
again, we've definitely gotten some successes in getting more buy side activity on the system itself. Uh, could be front, middle, or back office. It really kind of depends on the firm, the use case, and where they see it, you know, as a valuable uh, tool today or maybe, you know, in the next year or two. Sure. Feel free to push back on me if I, if I have this correct. But just before we get into ESG, because I think mm -hmm. this is an important piece before we get to ESG, because yep. it's why you guys are, you know, maybe made the acquisition of amenity. But it would seem to me that, you know, in the past, you know, when, when Symphony was kind of first brought to market, uh, the, the the main conversation was around um, chat communication mm -hmm. um, and that there was even like a time where it, it seemed like the company was looking to maybe branch more broadly out even outside of the capital markets. You know, I just wrote a piece about the interop space, the desktop interop space, your open mm -hmm. fins, your interop.io, which is Cosaic and um, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Finsemble and Blue42 uh, and even Connectify that's come to market and how they're also looking to kind of potentially branch out beyond um, just the capital markets. It would seem to me that over the last few years, the the focus of the rollouts that we've seen from Symphony and from the acquisitions have been strictly geared toward, you know, kind of the financial services sector. Um, and so, and it's not just about chat communications, it's about a more of a workflow solution. So, yeah. hence why you have something like Amity Analytics that can provide just that analytics to users more than just having, oh, here's a, um, a tool to facilitate communication between, you know, two counterparties, right? Or two or more counterparties. So that's the way that I've seen kind of symphony shifting. Do I have that correct? Would you maybe change anything that I say there? No, it's spot on. I mean, from a messaging system, leveraging chat, to a fuller communication suite, leveraging voice and chat now that we have Cloud9, to then more engaging in workflows. I wouldn't call us a workflow platform in the true sense of the technical, like I think that word gets used very specifically in sort of software world, but we are definitely engaged in workflows. And then, you know, thank you for trigger word and interop. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in interop, whether, you know, OpenFin, FTC3, a uh, combination of Glue and Finsemble, very familiar with the space. I think open source plays a role in there as well as use cases that you know need this. So that's all what we're playing for. We're still, I would say, largely skewed to financial services. We're starting to get more involved in insurance as what I call the cousin. You know, they have elements of insurance that are very active in our industry. They're the they're a big part of buy side, but yep. they also have some similar needs and. Years ago, Symphony was looking at other verticals, um, interestingly, but maybe a little bit before it was ready as a platform or even the world understood this stuff well enough pre-pandemic. Uh -huh. Healthcare, military, public um, insurance. So those were, but with amenity, we're actually in the space now a little bit more directly as some of the clients of that system are in the insurance space. Um, our compliant messaging is getting some real uh, interesting in incomings on from the insurance industry more generally that has some challenges on messaging from the people that sell people insurance to the people that are more in the institutional end trading with counterparties on the street. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely, we're still think there's a lot to do in financial services at depth and maybe going wider in wealth management and true banking, but there's no doubt that we could be as interesting to in other verticals. We're just mindful about going too far left or right um, based on what we think is needed as specializations to really do this stuff right, especially when you're going firm to firm. Well, so and so as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think that amenities one of those interesting 
um, acquisitions and because of the the research that they provide. So going to read something here that um, one of your colleagues uh, helpfully sent over to me. But mm -hmm. um, so uh, research by many link shows uh, greenwashing has been uh, running rife, registering a 600% increase in mentions of green portfolios in the last full year with little justification by way of business co um, commitments. Many of these finds are collaborated by research that only 5% of passive ESG fund investments contribute to climate recovery, meaning that the resultant 95% of investments do not facilitate sustainability. And finally, uh, investors are actively act exiting sustainable funds. Uh, mm -hmm. May witness the worst month ever for withdrawals with investors pulling um, uh, 304 million pounds from sustainable funds. So it this seems to me to match up to a lot of headlines I read, you know, uh, my my longtime girlfriend, Al, she's uh, works in sustainability, um, something she's very passionate about, something we're very passionate about and something that we believe in. I believe that sustainability can help an investment portfolio, but it would seem that the hype around ESG almost got maybe too far ahead of the wagon and it's kind of led to a, a lot of negative headlines, certainly over the last year. Um, and so the issue kind of market has seemed to lost its way a little bit from what from from some of the the rah-rah hype that we saw you know going into the pandemic and even into the pandemic would you agree with that assessment do you do you see that the same way that i do why do you what these numbers that many are showing mm -hmm. what do you think underpins that right now yeah, and I could give you some interested guesses, I guess. But when when the world starts to pay attention to things, which definitely in the last year or two, I think climate and ESG and social, it's just it's no longer it's borderless now. So there's a explosion in chatter and what people think is a requirement to do something differently. Mm -hmm. I think at the other end of the spectrum, there's a total lack of standards, um, period, um, which is really hard yeah. to then. You know, I don't know if you want to improve or or do anything, you need a baseline to measure from. And the moment you talk about baseline to measure from, you know, enter a lot of views, subjectivity and even politics. Right. It's because, you know, a lot of data you can make look like what you want, depending on sure. the place you start or the graph, how you choose to show the the it's slope. A beautiful thing about data, man. You can make beautiful thing about data. But I even <laughs> if, you know, maybe and this is maybe far afield, but that's what podcasts are for. Um, <laughs> There's a conversation now about the incent, the incentive and the intention of AI, right? Mm -hmm. It's important to know your intention up front so that you can have a sense of what you're trying to regulate and then get it right out of the gate. And I know there's a whole body of people smarter than me that are thinking that way. I think there's a lot of incentive stuff that's going on now that is probably either very axed or distorted or distorting. And I think ESG and AI probably have some common elements there of needing something that's at the center to decide what is pro-human or not, or pro-economy or not, or pro-whatever version a government decides they kind of want to prosper. So both suffer from a lack of clear standards and regulation. Mm -hmm. Both seem to be a big enough conversation that we need something to benchmark against. And I'm not smart enough to know what the benchmarks are. I'll probably have a stronger hand in the AI game because I feel like I'm in it more directly. Whereas the ESG game, I'm in it, I care about it, we're measuring, we're trying to be a good provider of service in the context of what we burn to get there. Um, 
But do you think that yeah, with ESG I, that it, it's because it, I, I fully agree with what you're saying, like on the AI front, it's, it's almost like a little bit different in that AI is this catch all for everything from all the various types of machine learning that you have out there, you know, whether a basic decision tree all the way down. to It's a huge thing quality. It's just got this massive wrapper to it. I guess my yeah. point is it's getting put into a. Um, everybody is either fearing it or trying to use it to their advantage or doesn't want to get educated enough to care about which side is right. Yeah. There's a, just this common thing to me of ESG is just a little further along in the debate, to be honest, because it's been with us for 10 or 15 years in the global debate, whereas yeah. AI is like yesterday. <laughs> well, so, so, and this is what, this is the thing that I've always, you know, I've written a lot about this and it's, it's, it's for me, it's one of the most frustrating things. I, I hate the term ESG specifically when it comes to like data because E, S, and G are two massive fields of data, or three massive fields of data yes. underneath each, or they're each underpinned by massive, massive, different, divergent um, uh, uh, information sets. So, and that's what seems, you know, because like you said, like, you know, you can say, yeah, you know, we're really good on the E, S, but if you're horrible on the G or vice versa on anything else, are you really an ESG compliant, you know, uh, fund? Are you ESG compliant company? And that's where I think that where the data providers, there's this kind of struggle to, all right, how do we make stuff that's more uniform across all these different data, all these different providers that are providing A, B, C, D scores, one to 10, one to 100, one star, five star, you know, stuff like that. So if you don't have uniformity in the data itself and the data is so wide and divergent, it almost makes me wonder you know, how is this going to be a viable, how does this stay a viable data offering going forward? And so I guess, how do you provide analytics around this very complex wide set of information that isn't standardized? Because um, yeah. I think that's what chooses the winners and losers in that race. I, I guess on some level, I just believe that there is no choice but to engage on E, S, and G. And I totally agree with the point that es and g like for me e for my firm it's are we using a lot of plastic in our pantry like are we just doing base like that's an easy like so there's an e element plus i do believe that we also allow people to do less commuting more remote work and we're an enabler of lowering carbon mm -hmm. but we can be a user of plastic in our pantry so there's just that one thing just for symphony is just an interesting like example of how complicated just the E can be for us. Yeah. Knowing we're a net value creator in lower commute times, but actually staying at home is a bit anxiety and depressing. And maybe we're creating a mental health crisis by allowing people to remote work. Yeah. I don't know. So yeah. there's, then there's uh, S. I think email is anxiety inducing. And I think collaboration is a better tool to get on top of stuff. So I think socially, and I think there's a lot of weird passive aggressive behavior that's evolved in email that we maybe could start better in a collaboration led environment. We protect a lot of data in G, right? We think we govern ourselves well as a corporate. We're also a consortium, which has its dynamics, but we do a really good job protecting our clients' data, right? So governance of our company is one thing. Governance of the data that we see is another. So it's a long way of agreeing with you. And then we're just a fintech or a tech for fin and a whole industry where there's healthcare and you know media and energy and mining and materials like 
I almost think how you need specialists to develop in each one of those areas that then figure out how they connect to each other, almost like cybersecurity works globally these days on standards, right? There's yeah. the generic standards for the world, but then, you know, my guess is the Pentagon is using a pretty high grade of stuff, whereas maybe some retail outlet doesn't need that same, you know, level of engagement on cyber, even though they need to protect themselves. Maybe yeah. their bigger issue is people smashing and grabbing their goods from their storefront. Yeah. Do you think that then, so is it something where, could you talk about more, um, maybe more kind of um, standardization? Does that have to be government led? Does that have to be no. SEC, CFTC led? How does, how does that then happen? I think standards are, who has the incentive and cares enough to have a standard? You get the right group of people, governments, trade associations, but ultimately standards have to be implemented. That's where standards are really created, right? The standard is a document until it's adopted and it goes from document to a standard once it's in place. So I think it's important to involve like the sectors and how they, what they need. The governments and the trade associations could play a huge role in catalyzing the need or the, the idea, but it's to me, I'm very use case driven. So what's the use case that needs a standard and then it's almost like if you just start doing the process, you'll back into the standard you need to do the process instead of creating a standard. And obviously, there's a lot of debate right now in SEC and investing criteria and reporting standards. I'm preparing like I'm going to have to report everything to the world every day in real time on consumption and production. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that really means for me, but my intern project this year actually for our team is is that like coming up with, you know, ideas around decreasing our output. Okay. You know, you'd mentioned something a little bit earlier about like mental health and it's, it's a topic I love to talk about just because I've talked about it in podcasts, but uh, when, <laughs> after I turned, I've flown all over the world. I've been to Asia, Europe, South America, you know, Canada, all over the United States and flying was never an issue. Heights were never really an issue. And then I turned 40 and something just snapped in my head and then the pandemic happened and you stopped going into an office. And now like the idea of having to go up to like the 22nd floor where we're located um, in Pine Street, I just, I can't do it. Like I, I do it here and there, but it's, it's a rarity. And like, even when I'm like scheduling meetings with people, I have to be like, we got to do this on the ground floor somewhere. I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> up into things. It's crazy. I know fully. Uh, you, like, as we said, you joined um yeah basically at the start of the pandemic and you've been a ceo before um but once you took over as ceo these last few years what are some of the things that you've learned in this position that maybe you didn't think about before that maybe you know because previously when you were ceo there wasn't a pandemic that maybe it's maybe changed your mind on some of your management um skills from your, your management style. Has anything changed over these last couple of years? Oh, sure. That's, I think we have a whole separate podcast coming uh, as a follow. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of strong views about the pandemic and work from home and all of that. I, I think ultimately, like, you know, as your body changes and you eat different things and you move less or more, like it really is a chemistry thing in the brain. And it's even a biological thing in the gut. And those are very connected. And I believe in all those gut health to brain health. Um, you know, the happiness study that talks about having relationships long term that are two way or the best way to stay happy and productive in society. Mm -hmm. um, you develop bad, ha you develop habits in 21 days and it takes like a lifetime to break. So 
um, you know, people should be getting around, getting into office. I tried, not, I, I moved as much as I could through the pandemic, to be honest, within the bounds of safety. I had some stuff with my dad health-wise that I needed to fly to Florida. My kids were in college. I got in and out a bit where I could. Um, so I do think there's an element of just movement that is helpful. I don't love commuting, but I think that rhythm is just helpful for society to operate and for humans to actually exercise their body. You know, yeah. people are sitting a lot and uh, I think they're getting consumed with their VR, like in the, in the not the literal sense, but like we're virtualizing quite a bit in the world. So, yeah, I think it's a massive crisis. I think it's a lot of physical issues. I think drug addiction and drug abuse and all those things are spiking dramatically. And I've I've kids that are now, you know, in their early 20s. I could see like there's a very different thing going on in the rewiring of brains through TikTok and all of those types of uh, sure. stimuli, dopamine. You're hearing about even the diet pills now, the the mental health crisis. <laughs> like, so yeah. it's almost an endless. By the way, it might be your inner ears not adjusting as easily. So you kind of are more afraid of heights. Like I can't do upside down rides anymore now. Yeah. Like my inner ear doesn't adjust, I don't think. And But gut health, movement, get into the office at least a bit. This is great. You know, I haven't seen you in years, but someday we will be, you know, fist bumping. And uh, yeah. it's just, you know, it's important to be connected to people. It's important to be physical and it's important to exercise everything, including, you know, Sudoku, those, those brain teasers online. That's not exercising your brain. That's creating a habit of sitting in your home even more. Yeah. No, for um, me, I, um, I actually have to keep track of um, my phone, time. like how much of my screen time my phone is, because like I just realized, like, so I put it away for a couple hours every single night. I'm just like, I'm not connected. Um, you know, I, I, we grew up in a different time. You know, we saw pre-internet days. You know, so we had pre-internet well, lives, and then we had post-internet lives. But you look at, you know, not to be the old man, you kids don't know what it's going, but it really is serious. Like how the workforce is going to change and how mentalities of a younger generation are going to change in some ways it'll be good it'll help be progressive if you if you kind of if if you're open to it in some ways they're not going to be able to understand no you have to be in an all you have to kind of meet up with your colleagues there's great benefit in having that team camaraderie yes over you know over video is good it's great that i can communicate with wei shen and see her face when she's in hong kong um, and I'm here in New York, but you also still need to have that get together. You still need, I, you know, I have to make sure that I'm walking five miles a day. Otherwise, like you said, I'm just sitting at a desk all day and that's not good for anything. And one so. thing just, you mentioned the joining, you know, I joined in July 20. So, you know, had I joined and it wasn't a pandemic, I would have known the New York team well and known the rest of the team globally a little less well. Actually, it was a nice playing field leveler for me and getting to know the firm. I just, I was, it was virtual everyone. So I sort of, other than time zone challenges, which is always the case with Asia or whatever, I got to know the people around the firm quite well. You know, it was almost a benefit that joining as a rel as a junior person, I think it would have been a much bigger struggle. Um, as a senior person, it just got me more connected to more people more quickly. Plus we're remote work, we're a tech led company. So it was natural for us to be doing it a bit more. So I, on some side, it, it did benefit me from connecting. I could tell you after, you know, getting into the CEO seat in June 21, I just take it seriously that I need to see clients physically where they are. I need to see my colleagues, you know, I need to get around, um, period. And it's hard to travel and 
I have a bit more of a luxury now with older kids, but, um, you know, I still like my home. I don't love commuting like anybody else, but it's, uh, yeah, I've, and I probably learned a bit more, you know, and I was an inside CEO last time, this time it's a full sort of firm down with a board, um, and a standalone sort of CEO seat. It's given me, you know, just more ability perspective, I guess, to just take on whatever is thrown at me versus me trying to engineer to an outcome. I like to engineer outcomes, as you know, I've spoken to you for a lot of years about industry identity and chats and integrated directories and all these cool physical things that you really have to manifest physically. I probably got more comfortable going with the flow and the last three years have been insane, yeah. right? I mean, truly breathtaking insanity on the planet. I've come into a firm, managed it pretty well, have an amazing team and, you know, as much as I can, which is, you know, as much as anybody in our industry, which is to some degree, not great. You know, I, I can go with the flow now more probably than I did before I joined Symphony specifically. Um, some of my favorite people that I spend a lot of time with say, maybe I don't go with the flow as much, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, um, and life's too short, right? I mean, everything can change on like a Monday. Um, and I think that's a good lesson, just period. And whether it's business or your kids or your own health, um, you know, it's important to just give it perspective and not take the stuff too seriously because there's a lot. Okay. Before I let you go, I, I was hoping to do a little bit of lightly, lightning round on uh, some of the um, hot button topics uh, uh, in the industry right now. Um, you ready for lightning? You said round. already. You said already, <laughs> and I know that you know with your work with Finos and and that you've done in the past and everything that that you're a big fan of open source. But how do you see the industry? You know, it, it seems like the industry is kind of coming around more and more to open source. I think that's because it kind of helps democratize things like AI. Why reinvent the wheel when you can use TensorFlow, right? Um, so, what's your uh, thoughts on uh, industry adoption of open source? Yeah. I, it definitely helps democratize things that could just be done together, but it also, I think it's more resilient at times. I think the, the power of the crowd developing things secure, either security wise or just good code. I think there's a resiliency that you get from open source. That's hard to get unless you span institutions. And I think, I think there's real innovation velocity. You know, I've always, Ali Villagra and I, who was my partner when we were re, when we were recasting Finos back in the day, we think it's an innovation velocity game. Like, yes, because it, you know, part of it is taking you out of those rote things. Part of it is the idea of more resiliency, more trust, but there is a net innovation advantage just being at the table with the industry and solving problems versus building applications. Okay. Large language models and generative AI in general. Uh, I'm more of an SLM guy in terms of belief. I think small language models that are connected will be the the thing. I think large is both risky and heavy on compute and even unfriendly to ESG and even challenging to get your head around, but creating a number of smaller purpose-built models that leverage that same tech that could then connect to each other, um, I think is probably more the true way forward for sectors. And you know, we'll probably work small up and then meet the mega techs where they're working on their massive data sets down. And uh, blockchain technology, not for digital assets, cryptocurrencies, but for other forms of industry needs in the back office, such as settlement, things like that. Yeah, it's a great, great angle. I think AI is a great use case for settlement exception management and settlement predictions on breaks. And I think, you know, automation through smart contracting and wiring up things at the base level 
asset so that it can settle automatically when the instruction is just waiting as opposed to then somebody pushing it through a process even if it's a api that's doing it so i definitely think smart contracting and automations will have a really interesting impact on middle to back and ai could meet its you know and it and it'll meet its they will both meet their collaboration data science cousins symphony in the middle Brad, uh, this is a fun conversation, always is when I'm chatting with you. So I uh, appreciate you taking the time out and talk with us today. Thanks so much, Tony. I appreciate the uh, the venue and the uh, the dialogue, as always. Mm -hmm.